0: Are you ready to go? The Qash. Yo, Kasanakamatama! This is Okashina Podcast Anime with Friends. I am your host, Sabrina Ray, and here with me as always is my childhood chum, Don. Don! <laughs> do you like the word chum? <laughs>
1: It really comes to mind as um, some sort of fish food.
0: uh, Yeah, it's like ground up like fish bits that are all bloody and used to allure in sharks.
1: So glad that that is how you think of me.
0: It's It's a word that people often use to describe somebody who's a buddy or a pal. But I'm wondering why they use that particular word. I'm pretty sure that those two meanings were not
1: uh, synonymous, and I, I, I would guess that the chum, the source of the word chum, is not related to the source of the word for the chopped up bits of leftover fish that is used to lure sharks or other predators.
0: Well, that's how I think of you, so...
1: So it really is a a serendipitous crossover, huh?
0: How are you today? It's a very exciting day. We finally got to the finale of Keep Your Hands Off Azo Ken.
1: I I am sad to see it go, but uh, I was thrilled to watch these last two episodes.
0: Very cool. And how is life going for you? Anything exciting?
1: Uh, Today was the first snow that I've seen all season. It was also very rainy and kind of drab, but I have the next three days off plus the weekend, so I'm very Right, we're
0: recording this on the eve of Thanksgiving, which is a very different holiday this year in America. Um, I invited my parents out about four months ago to come to celebrate Thanksgiving with us. I was going to make a big turkey and do the whole thing, which I normally don't do because a turkey is a lot of meat, and it's not the quality of meat that I, that I prefer. It's, it's a little dry for me. Um, I much prefer stuffing over the actual turkey, although I do like the crispy turkey skin when people do it, right? Um, but my parents denied that request, and it's probably for the best now that I look at it because we are in another huge wave of covid over here in New Jersey and lovely New Jersey.
1: Yeah, you're not alone. I would say uh, it is good that they did not travel because I don't think anybody should be traveling. I don't right think now. so either. but. I am also sadly not seeing my family, but I will be celebrating here with uh, some close local friends who are the only people inside my COVID bubble.
0: That's great. Um, The people who are inside my COVID bubble have other plans this time. So I'm going to make like a lot of turkey and then I'm going to like divide it up into Thanksgiving sandwiches with the canned cranberry slices and the um, and the stuffing on top of the turkey. With a little bit of mayonnaise and uh, some gravy on top of that. So it should be really good.
1: We just started brining our turkey tonight, which we find is the easiest way to, to avoid any dryness. Do you do a dry brine mentioned. or do
0: you do a wet brine? Wet brine. Okay. I've seen a lot of people saying the dry brine is the way to go. I, I usually do a wet brine, but I've been curious. I've also seen a lot of people put turkeys into deep fryers, which... I've had it's good, but I don't know if it's worth the ultimate like investment of effort, uh, especially for me, who does not have like an outdoor area attached to where I live. Like there's nowhere where I, I like feel like I have the right to deep fry a turkey like it's not demarcated by the town. <laughs> I have
1: always wanted a deep fry turkey. Uh...
0: Well, that's a dream you could have, though, right?
1: I could probably execute on that dream, yes. I could...
0: Uh, I don't know exactly where I would do it, because... See, that's my problem, too. I don't know where I would do like it. Like, you
1: want it to be... How much distance do you want between the deep fryer and literally every other object?
0: I mean, they have exploded before. I've even know, I even know someone personally who had one explode almost on them. They got, like, a second-degree burn from the grease... So um, that's not great.
1: (laughs) No, no, I I don't want to be in that situation.
0: Um, In my world, other than Thanksgiving, which I'm excited for with reservations, um, I saw the movie Roma, finally. I don't know if you ever saw it.
1: No, I've never seen Roma.
0: It came out on Netflix about two years ago, I think. It's really, really good. It's black and white. It takes place in the 1970s in Mexico City in the area called Roma of that town. And it's a very tumultuous time. Uh, There's a lot of cultural change happening and it follows the life of um, this, this woman who works as the help. She's like an indigenous woman who works for this family. I think I have seen this. It's shot entirely in black and white or it's, it's finished in black and
1: white. I think I saw it at Sundance.
0: It's beautiful, right? It's just a beautiful movie. Uh, There's a scene towards the end where, where they they rush out into the ocean where this woman rushes out into the ocean and it's shot so wonderfully because the the waves look so menacing uh, the film is just full of great textures too not just visual texture but sound texture there's a scene where they're in a department store and this protest outside spills into the department store first through the audio it's really really cleverly done
1: yeah it's a, it's a beautiful movie it's um it, it's it's rooted in time it's rooted in In, not class warfare but class it's rooted in definitely desire and longing it's a beautiful story
0: it also has a scene where a guy does like um does like bruce lee sort of like uh, kung fu karate with his penis just hanging out and flopping around
1: (laughs) that was particularly appealing to you
0: no, it wasn't appealing. It was just, it was just, uh, it was just like this is this is the movie I'm watching right now. Like it's like this super artistic, like beautiful expression of a lot of different things. And then there's this scene of just this floppy wiener.
1: I mean, really, it's the it's the human condition that men are always or often most of the time, I would say, uh, sporting their floppy wieners in everything that they do, <laughs> and yet you simply don't see it.
0: Well, there was that movie with um, with Viggo Mortensen, where he also has like a a a battle inside of a, a Russian spa with his wiener out, and his wiener's just like an extra character in the film. Other than that, really, my whole world has been consumed by Bug Snacks, which we finally rolled credits on, and I have to say it lived up to almost all of my expectations. It was, it, I, I, I ultimately did predict what the story would be. Um, and I was not disappointed with how far and intense and wild it got uh, for a game that my daughter and I played together. It was cool. Assassin's Creed, the new one I'm also playing. And that is mm, so good. Like I have already played like All three of the most recent Assassins created which share a lot of DNA with the new one. But what they did that's so good in this one is the mountains actually feel mountainous. And when you commit to, like, climbing one to try to get to a treasure, and they've removed the, like... The, like, magical radar that tells you, like, well, you can op- you can put this in optionally, but they've removed the magical radar that tells you, like, what elevation things are at and, like, kind of cheats where things are. So you kind of have to solve, like, environmental puzzles sometimes. And, wow, um, committing to climbing a mountain to get that kind of, like, little treasure that you see, like, a little blip of, sometimes you'll be, like, you'll be, like, an hour up and down the mountain only to find this vast crevice that you then also have to climb down, but then you can get stuck or you'll like see like a part that you slide down and there'll be like a little branch off to the side and you're like, Oh my God, if I jump now I can catch that branch and you do. And then you find a little cave and it's so much better than something like um, there was a game called Assassin's Creed Odyssey that came before this one, which took place in ancient Greece. This one takes place during the time of Vikings, but In the Ancient Greece one, you often felt like Wonder Woman where you were just like able to leap tall buildings in a single bound like Superman Wonder Woman, right? Um, The new one is very much, it very much makes you feel like you're stuck in the dirt like a mud pig (laughs) a lot of the time. (laughs) You could still, you still have kind of magical like climbing prowess, like no one would be able to climb the way she does or he does. You play kind of as both. It's weird. But it's interesting that the,
1: I mean, I imagine the mechanics of climbing this mountain are extremely exciting and fascinating. But what you've described is I spent an hour trying to climb a mountain and I got stuck. <laughs> I have to say, not sure that that had the desired impact that you were looking for. Um, oh. I would. It's amazing how little time I seem to have nowadays for games. I'm looking forward to reclaiming some of my time, I'll be honest. Well,
0: I think that you deserve it. You certainly dedicated a lot of your life to not playing games. True.
1: Um, But at some point, I think I will cash in on that particular activity. We'll see. In the sense that one day I may just wake up and be like, oh, I'm not going to work anymore. Working
0: is overrated. Passe. You've been... You've been watching from the sidelines. Is there anything that you're like, that you would be like dying to play? I honestly, you know, that's an excellent question
1: because I I haven't shelled out for any of the new platforms. I So I haven't been caught up in the buzz or that sort of activity. I am interested in going back. Like I haven't even ever played like Undertale.
0: That's fascinating.
1: The last two games that I played were both computer games. Doom, the Doom Eternal, uh, Divinity to original sin i think that was the name it was, it did
0: had, you ever clear that i remember you were playing with someone
1: i was playing with someone and we did peter out um in that i have not yet completed the game although i think we both want to um but i i just haven't had the the bandwidth to do it um, Yeah. and i i mean there's no reason that i won't so we'll see what's going on
0: i would definitely recommend for you uh dark souls I think that that's an interesting evolution of sort of like the dungeon crawl kind of game. It reminds me a bit of like what I've experienced of dungeons and dragons in a way. And that like, it feels like the, the, like the world is not dynamic. It's like a board and you're like moving a piece around, but it's still like an action game and you still have to perform and it's incredibly difficult But the reward for doing so and the way that you sort of muscle memory, force your way through the game, reminds me very much of like, um, sort of like scenarios that are just set in stone and and the characters don't even move unless you get close enough. So you can like trigger them with like distant attacks, like arrow attacks and stuff. It's very interesting. I mean,
1: I've heard about the, how legendarily difficult the game is. And I don't
0: know that that holds a lot of appeal right now. It's amazing. You just have to try it, I think. Oh, fair and, enough. And see what what comes of it. Because some people think they're super difficult. And some people find ways to make them easier. Like, um, it's a very... The first game, Dark Souls... It's not the first, really. Demon Souls is the first. But Dark Souls is... Um, it's a shield game. So a lot of the game is, like, carrying a, a shield and, like... Uh, parrying and or, like, taking blows and then striking after you take a blow. And you have to sort of, like, creep and crawl through the levels rather than just, like, burst through, especially your first time. I mean, it depends how you want to play. You can play it either way. But anyway, let's talk about Ezo, Ken. Let's do it. Um, so this is the last two episodes of the series one. we I don't know whether it's the series finale or not, um, probably our coverage of the series will end here, um, because it's a nice ending. I think it's not super exciting for an ending. It doesn't really, in my opinion, wrap up anything except the the immediate story they're telling.
1: So this is um this is interesting that this is the tack you take because I disagree. I felt it did like I guess what loose ends do you feel needed to be wrapped up like i feel Azokan has been fairly narrow in its in its scope as you
0: said as you said previously um there have been three arcs and this is the end of the third arc mm-hmm. but it's not a graduation it's not um it's not a moment of uh, realization like you might expect uh it's just the culmination of all of the previous stories in a way that uh, at the very least pushes them forward more, but it's not an end destination. And if the series as a manga continues after this, I have not looked into it um, and I have not followed up with um, any news of whether or not they're going to make more. I don't know if it's, if it if they have an end goal like getting them out of high school, there's a couple of them, thoughts that come uh, to mind into you, the industry itself. I, I mean, know. do we need this? Isn't mm-hmm, um, but this isn't even the end of their high school career. Maybe not as far as we know. I feel like the
1: first episodes, the first four episodes, were much more um, informative as to how animation is made and then as we graduated more we saw as well sort of the producer side the challenges that you face there i felt like in this last uh four episode arc we've had less of that we've had some of it there's been increasing complexity i think this one sort of broached up upon well what when you are trying to make a product that that fits with its environment you know what are the things you need to consider there and especially in these last two episodes where they talk about, look, everything is timed and synced up with a certain date. We don't have the flexibility to maneuver around issues that arise. Um, we don't, you know, we've we've committed because there's a, right. there's a lot of moving parts and there's no way to escape those moving parts. Um, and so these lessons are still there. I do feel that as they have, as the informational arc has branched away from the actual creation of anime, or of, of the animation itself, that that has been slightly less compelling. I think they've been fair in saying that these are still important elements of the story, and so their coverage of them is appropriate and still interesting. But it's not as interesting as sort of the challenges that they originally set up and sort of the the making of animation. And I I also loved you know in the second arc when we were talking about. Uh, Mizuki's grandmother and the throwing of the Mizusaki. water. Mizusaki. Thank you. Um, the throwing of the water. That to me was, it was both that, it was that showing moment that also was a teaching moment. And I felt less of that this time around in this final cycle, because a lot of it was about, you know, you're, you're pushing against, and, and there was more tension here with the student union, um, that came up because they're not, um, they're not happy necessarily with Azokan kind of going out on its own and the school itself was frustrated with them. Um, so, yes. to me, it's not clear. I'm not sure that I feel the need for there to be more Azoken, <laughs> in the sense that they've taught us a lot of what they set out to tell us. And I thought they did it smartly and and intelligently. But I also felt like, well, we don't. I don't feel compelled necessarily for this to go on for the sake of going on, right? Like I felt it was fairly tight and it came together well. And I felt that if this were the last of it, that would be satisfactory.
0: Yeah, um, so I I agree with what you're saying, but I also think that you are saying that you were slightly uh, disappointed in this last arc in just that it just was not as compelling content wise and therefore the ending is also not as compelling even though yes it does sort of take all of the lessons and all the things we've learned about animation and sort of put them up on the screen and show us how far the girls have come and um, the theme that it's all based around is coexistence which ends up being the key word to unlocking this mystery enemy that Asaxa has struggled with for three episodes. And it ends up being a story between the kappa, which we could kind of see foreshadowed a couple times, you know, having just come off of Sarazamai, which is yeah, such what a, a strange a, what coincidence. What a uh,
1: serendipitous, if you will, connection. <laughs>
0: This is, yeah. Welcome to the Kappa Show, <laughs> where we just say, Kappa, 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 Kappa. <laughs> in fact, we just watched One Piece, and in the Wano Kuni arc, they introduced Kamatsu, the Kappa. It's raining Kappa. <laughs> we've learned... You're right. We've learned what we're going to learn about anime without actually becoming animators <laughs> and working in the industry. Um, and the introductory parts were the compelling, really, like... Um, big big ticket items sort of of how animation comes together that's like the disney tour that we talked about like like that's like the mgm studios tour where like you get to see rapunzel being put together or whatever and, like they have like um people at storyboards and people at like uh in front of their animation workstations like working maybe <laughs> uh and you're like just all gawking at them through like plexiglass windows right that we've seen that level and that's as much as like a layman or woman is able to understand about this stuff and over the last four episodes especially with these final two the sort of like struggles and trials that they go through are a little less relatable a little bit less um interesting from the standpoint of Uh, learning something new or getting sort of a history lesson. Now we're down to like nitty gritty stuff. Like um, these two episodes are very much about Asakusa figuring out what the story is. And it comes back to an idea that they've been suggesting for most of the show's run that that they needed to play. But that also rang a bit false in that Asakusa as far as what the show has presented to us, seems to have been playing this whole time. And I don't know whether it was Kanamuri that was the part that was missing from her play, like when the three of them start like kind of riffing off of each other is when this idea is born. But um, I was wondering what your take on that was, because it seems to me that Asakusa and Mizusaki have been playing quite a lot. In addition to working very hard, but
1: yeah, I mean, I, I hear you, but I think there is something to be said about the fact that if you are sitting, like, and especially when you're creative and when you're trying to be in a creative mode, and you're sitting down at a easel or a, or you're forcing yourself to say, "I now must come up with ideas that I will incorporate into this art that I'm creating," that's a very challenging and usually counterproductive. Um, effort on your part you can't it's hard to force ideas to come um, which is why artists are seen as uh, the the work ethic associated with artists takes a blow because often it's difficult to have ideas just flow from you sitting in front of a a screen or an easel or whatever it might happen to be Um, and I the thing that I found most challenging about this arc is that how much of the ideas were dependent upon um, a vision and they had progressed quite far without finalizing that vision and i guess that works right and here is where there's a breakdown like well that might work for the azokan but i don't feel like it would work for a a larger organization which has to do like the more coordination you have to do the more moving parts start to fit together the more the story has to be locked down and i also was kind of like look It's one thing to start from the idea I'm going to have these spaceships battling at each other, these UFOs shooting at each other, um, and say that's the cool set piece. It's a whole other thing to be like, all right, let's design and build that scene before we have a story into which it connects. Because to me, like, well, you kind of need that story. I was more intrigued, honestly, when later at the end, when the the big crisis uh, upends itself, this sound crisis. Um, when she, Asakusa says, you know, I didn't really love the ending anyway. Like I felt like we, we didn't, we didn't put it together the way that something should really unf- unravel or unfold. And I, I thought to myself, like it is, this is a more, mm-hmm. um, relatable scene. Like I could see a director, um, having a story putting things together, they're in part of production and in the middle of that creative process, where there in fact is a defined beginning and end, they say, it's just not working. And I do feel the need to redo this aspect of it. And, you know, just from anecdotally from my own experience, I feel like that, that does happen. And that can happen. And that is something that you can absorb, not having any idea of a beginning and an end while you're in the middle of production places a tremendous amount of faith on the director um, in a way that I don't know you would receive in a um, a student group, <laughs> uh, so that bit rang a little uh, was a little challenging over this four episode arc. What did you think?
0: Sure, she's she's given a bit of leeway because of uh, being a student and this being an, a non professional production. Although it's it rivals some professional productions, I would imagine, as far as the work ethic and the amount of. Uh, quality control i think that create i think that you nailed it when you said that creatives are often sort of they need the time and they need the space in order to create um and they need the they need that breathing room but they also need pressure you can't
1: (laughs) you can't let them and uh spin in the wind indefinitely they've got to they've got to come back right to earth but it's also possible that you say at, you have a deadline of five days, and at the end of the five days, they're like, "I don't, I don't got it yet. I, I, I need more time."
0: Yes, and I imagine that happens on Hollywood movies sometimes. Like I know that, for instance, the Pirates of the Caribbean movies are lavish productions. They are not scripts. They are they are action set pieces that the studio pre-plans with Jerry Bruckheimer, the producer. He comes up with some wild idea. Like there's going to be a Malastrom Malastrom and there's going to be ships on the inside of like a whirlpool. And that's where the final battle is going to take place. So get us there. And then the director and the writer are like, well, okay. um, So we need this actor and this actor, but we only have them for these days. And then like the writers are like trying to come up with like dialogue that makes sense. Or how do we get to this point? But like, Sometimes movies are assembled that way, especially on this like new Hollywood era that we're living in, where everything is a tentpole blockbuster.
1: I mean, honestly, it sounds like the quote unquote agile approach that we incorporated at work recently, which is all about, you know, you don't have to have the thing fully locked down before you go into a design phase. However, so essentially you say, (laughs) I need to produce the final product that does X, and you, the the people who are putting together this application for you are like, oh, okay, well, what what are we? What are the bits that you need? And you say, well, I want something that does this little thing, and they build that, and you're like, okay, that looks good, or no, it doesn't. Tweak this. Meanwhile, um, we put together, we cooked up the idea for the mm-hmm. other bits to do this, and it's it's called an agile approach because it allows for flexibility and. You know, maybe you get something, maybe you get a bunch done in a that's week. Maybe the next week you get very little done. You're not as wedded to these longer timelines. All that's fine. But it also... For a movie, I, I really feel like I like a good story. And you raise a good point when you mention that these are about the uh, Pirates of the Caribbean movies. They aren't always known for the story, I think, is one thing you can say about them.
0: Right, especially the sequels where they... They kind of fly by the seat of their pants a lot of the time. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I'm Cam. I'm Jory. And we're the hosts of CWFP. The Casual Wrestling Fan Podcast. Your weekly universe-friendly alternative for WWE wrestling recaps, discussion, and riffs from two friends who just love wrestling. And occasionally also New Japan, Impact, and All Elite Thoughts as well. If you're tired of Marks constantly booing a product they regularly support and pay for, you can find us hosted on the Orange Groves Network or through your preferred podcasting app. Wait, why won't The Undertaker stop booing the company? Hey, Jory, have you ever watched the anime called One Piece? Yeah, Joe, I watch it for a podcast that we do. What? You know, we are watching One Piece. I started watching it so you could rewatch it, and then we talk about it sometimes. I have, I have no idea what you're talking about. Well, we don't do it super frequently. Once a month, the best. D- did you forget? We analyze the story and discuss the show's themes, characters, compare it to other media, and how it provides an allegory for real-life politics and events. I, I must have forgotten. What, where can I listen to remind myself? You can listen at the Orange Groves Podcast Network or search for We Are Watching One Piece in your favorite podcast app. What's a podcast? <laughs> If I liked the final animation itself, I mean, it was impressive from a technical standpoint, and it certainly showed a lot of maturity in the type of story they were telling, especially with the new ending, which involved um, sort of like a rejection of easy answers and um, a more cathartic finale in which both sides the kappa and the humans which are at war with each other and they have a misunderstanding based on looks like centuries of back and forth um just sort of culturally missing each this, other this was explained
1: in detail and, and then they showed the the anime itself which as a you know essentially a silent picture without dialogue should therefore explain the concept. And I will be honest, I still didn't fully understand it.
0: Uh yeah. And Yeah, I would say that's true. And I would also say like they had voice actors doing
1: what? I, I got nothing. I got nothing for you there. And I So I agree with you. I did not I I I accepted the spectacle of the anime, but as a story, I actually felt that the uh, the giant mech was a little more digestible, and at least I understood it. Uh, I didn't understand the other one, uh, but I I did like the note on which they went out on, which is oh you know it could have been it could have been better. Like they've produced something, they've done it. It's a very significant accomplishment for them to produce their own DVDs entirely, sell out of them, you know, do it on a student budget. They're obviously doing the things that they love you would honestly expect them to continue doing this after they grad, you know, they graduate, like they've invested so much time and energy. This is, this is a real feather in your cap. And they're like, none of them are satisfied or especially, um, Asakusa is not satisfied with the output.
0: Konamari's is super satisfied because she sells out of the DVDs. <laughs> and that's also, that's also one of the problems with the episode is that, um, is sort of like the successes that they have are not that exciting. Kanamori's been trying to get this done for a while, so it's nice for her. It's just not particularly exciting. Selling
1: out of the DVDs is a testament to Kanamori's canny business logic, right? She's she's excellent at that. And in fact, to the extent that there are failures, it's not due to any mismanagement on her part. It's a creative failure or a director's failure somewhere along the way. Um basically I want to go out and hire Kanemori immediately to do anything uh, because she seems absolutely just completely driven, ruthless, methodical, and efficient.
0: The ruthless I mean, she's was, all the of word I was days, thinking of, yes. Uh, and
1: very effective at it. So you don't get any failure there. You do have the su- I mean, and of course, if she's not successful, then in principle the Azokan isn't successful because it's nothing to build on, right? So even if they produce a substandard product, which was not the implication here, the implication was the final product was still good, just not as good as it could have been.
0: Mizusaki and Kanamori were both happy with the results, but they knew that Asakusa, who had fallen asleep during the screening that they had, after, you know, a pretty intense... An uh, all-nighter. final right? run-up to their... Yeah, another all-nighter. <laughs> which we found out, by the way, that the beard... The beard advisor, the teacher advisor, has had to be there all the times that they've been and at he's the like, school. and I never get
1: a day off. I actually <laughs> love that little scene where they're like, hey, what, what is he doing here? There's a bear. And then he's like, yeah, I have to be here all the time that you're here. And he's so blasé about it, so sort of deus ex machina, in the sense of, like, if I wasn't here, this entire thing would have been a total flop. There's nothing you could have, you know, you would have been shut down. But I'm here playing video games, and that's yeah. and that's where they, really, of course, they also get the inspiration on you need more play. So, in fact, he's an ext- right. He, yeah. he had every he's system. extraordinarily <laughs> successful as a uh, as an advisor.
0: Yeah, yeah, he did his job. He he observed <laughs> their process and uh, made sure that. That uh, that that red that piece of red tape would could never be never held be. against them.
1: They they would never be held back by an absence of a of an instructor or a a monitor.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it's something nice that there was someone who was taken for granted this whole time. <laughs> I don't know what I was trying to say, but I I do want to go back to uh, the point which I was making, which was that Asaksa herself. As the director does take ownership of the product, and although Mizusaki is happy with how all of the elements came together for their piece, it's Asaksa who ultimately probably sees the flaws more so in the storytelling and um, and some. Of the well, I also feel like directors are
1: always going end. to struggle in that particular aspect because when you have a vision in your head and you're trying to align limited resources, time, and materials and skills to achieve that vision it's almost always going to fall short even if it's a magnificent product that gets produced um i was curious as to i mean Misusaki. i agree seems happy um but you know she has to do particular vignettes and she is ultimately in creative control of those particular vignettes and they therefore they are accomplished although she is also the one who has the biggest upset when the the sound bite does not align with the the film
0: oh she's devastated absolutely rocked to her core and i I just want to set the audience up for this if they don't remember it's the cliffhanger of episode 11 in which the whole project has finally come together they seem to have just enough time to get it out to the dvd pressers to make the the dvds they're going to need to sell at comic a the comic-con like convention that they're going to be selling these dvds at and they go to listen to the soundtrack, which I guess they they hadn't added yet, <laughs> which was the, supposed to be the final step because they had a demo, and so they knew the timing of how the soundtrack was going to work with the film. But when they got the final, it turned out that the person had gotten this inspiration at the last minute of a completely different scenario um, and come up with something very somber, and uh, a little sad, which didn't really go with the whole like everybody has a dance party at the end of the big UFO battle finale that Mizusaki had worked so hard on. Although I was not super impressed with that animation either.
1: <laughs> no, I I was I was very unimpressed with that.
0: The I
1: I also felt like this crisis was a bit artificial. And as a result, like it was a very, um, shot out of the blue, that mistake that got made. And it just doesn't seem, first of all, while it may have been on Asakusa's to identify and recognize this particular issue.
0: Yes, because she had two weeks notice. Right. But she failed to even
1: listen. Yeah, it feels like something Kanamori would have checked on. You know, to be honest, like Kanamori is always doing the checking. She's always, um making sure that people are talking to other people. I just feel like Kanamori wouldn't let this slip through the cracks. And then also, Kanamori is the one who is tasked with finding the solution to getting the DVDs reprinted because now they won't be able to get them at this one vendor. And she does it basically seamlessly. Uh, You
0: never... Seamlessly with a circular saw. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> she uses a circular saw to bust into the the clubhouse of the dvd pressing club i have no idea who they were yeah but speaking I was... of things i don't understand there's a whole scene where asaxa sees a bunch of weirdo german students with like face paint on though
1: i assumed that was the german club that was out jogging on a saturday
0: Was that like a soccer thing? I wasn't sure if they were hooligans or what that was supposed to be. So,
1: I mean, we both recognize that they were supposed to be German and they spoke like a couple words of German, but I agree, I have no idea what their purpose was, and I that that was very confusing. I think it. What? Why was? Why was kind of more? Why was um, Asaksa out? Just sort of roaming around in storm drains
0: that's her thing i get that she, <laughs> the whole series she's been looking for shortcuts and she's been finding little ways to get to the azokan and those storm drains
1: out. are usually like 80 pounds like there's no way that that asakusa is, is moving manhole covers and such
0: she has lots of gadgets in her backpack yeah she was We've just already, using her hands i already know this yeah maybe yeah mm. she, she looks she looks like she could move some stuff She's pretty I, I, strong looking. I don't know. Uh, Tough outdoorsy type, I would say. Anyway, I think I've gotten away from it again. <laughs> People are like, come on, Bree. You're not pulling this together today.
1: I just... I, I felt as if we had sort of a manufactured crisis. Yeah. The certain problems, like how are we going to get the DVDs pressed, were solved too quickly. And... I, I was sort of i was okay with the with Asaxa being like look this actually works because i wasn't happy with the ending anyway i thought that was sort of an interesting cover but i just felt like the crisis itself just was surprising in the way that it came out of the blue i guess maybe if there'd been more foreshadowing in an episode earlier where she talks about sounders i don't know it just felt like it really was dropped on us at the end of episode 11 to manufacture a crisis for us to have to deal with
0: Yeah, it was. And I think that that's indicative of how this process sometimes goes. When you realize you didn't, you didn't, like, this happens all the time on Hollywood movies again. Like, think about all the times that they do reshoots. They do reshoots and they have to, like, bring the actors back. Remember Justice League? I know that Justice League is, like, doing a Zack Snyder cut on HBO. It's, like, four hours long. But the original Justice League, they brought in... Uh, Joss Whedon to fill in for Zack Snyder after he was either let go or left due to a family emergency It's unclear whether which of those is, is uh, Is the true story is the, Hmm. well, they're both true, (laughs) but which (laughs) of those was the real reason that they moved the way they did. Okay. Anyway, Joss Whedon was brought in. He's known for the Avengers. Zack Snyder had until that point guided the DC brand almost entirely with uh, Christopher Nolan uh, sort of like as executive producer. And so they had a very dark sort of like uh, more mature quote unquote uh, look to the films. And Joss Whedon brought the characters back and he brought Henry Cavill back and Henry Cavill was shooting Mission Impossible five or six, maybe it was six fallout. And he was one of the main villains and he had a mustache, and they digitally removed it <laughs> for the reshoots. Like, things like this do happen, and you need to be able to come up with a solution that, that works. A digital, like, smoothed face <laughs> on one of your actors is not a great... It it looked terrible. Like, Justice League was not a great movie, but that was an especially awful decision. I've just... I'm just wondering, like, what?
1: Where, where does it cross your mind to be like, we've got the money, just erase the mustache. Like,
0: no, it's it would be easier. I mean, yeah.
1: Gosh, darn. I'm
0: sure now they're like, we should have done this differently. Or maybe if we had done this differently, uh, we would have had a hit movie or whatever. But also... Before COVID nineteen and all of the pandemic and stuff shut down production on a lot of these things, there was like a very tight schedule as far as releases go. Like they were like, like think about how far out Marvel plots their films. Oh yeah, I mean you, like can, you can you can take a look, look and see. Films. Oh, what,
1: what's what's going to come out in twenty twenty three, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. So like there is enormous pressure on that machine to deliver the results and to suddenly not be able to get your biggest property into theaters. Like, Justice League was supposed to be huge. It had Batman. Wonder Woman was just coming off of a successful setup film. Like, it was supposed to be gigantic, and it just wasn't.
1: Yeah, it was a disaster. I would, you know, you raise an interesting point, and I feel like COVID is definitely going to irrevocably impact the film industry and i think i recall you saying something like you're looking forward to going back in the theater but i'll be honest i'm not sure i will ever need to do so now i wasn't a big theater goer to begin with and now as we've talked about my gigantic 77 inch tv it's quite possible that perhaps i will never need to um and i'm not anticipating that everybody has made that kind of investment but like the We've we've managed to cope and we've managed to presumably do without movie theaters. And it's literally one of the most inessential activities I can think of in an internal space that one needs to do that is uh, mildly risky. So I do wonder, you know, what the what the longer term impact is going to be and, and also what the revenues are looking like for these firms.
0: I don't know. It's interesting because for a long time, movies have been, as I said, been on a slow and steady path towards only blockbusters succeeding. It's huge, and when you think about all this, like, creativity that's going into, you know, uh, Asaksa and Kanamori and Mizusaki's work, like, you think, like, they could get swallowed up by this idea that you have to go bigger and bigger and, and have these gigantic openings and gigantic, like, stories. Um, in that way, I kind of do like their final thing because it is sort of a... it's gigantic in the space battles, but Telling such a weird and not a weird, but telling such a poignant story is uh, is very different for their brand.
1: I mean, do they have a brand yet? It's only their third thing.
0: <laughs> yes, but look at look at the artists we did. Um, look at Makoto Shinkai's previous films. They're all sort of like establishing his brand. Um, the Garden of Words. Um, other films. <laughs> I, can't I was going to say
1: you, you. The only Shinkai movies I have seen are the ones I've seen uh, with you, dear Bree. But I, I would say that feature-length film, or even a hour-long film, can establish a brand. Um, two five-minute shorts seems a little, a little bit stretching it.
0: But they all do have very similar, like DNA in them. They all have a very I, if you were to watch all three of those shorts back to back, you would say they're from the same sort of think tank mind. So.
1: I, I wonder, I'm curious as to whether you think the characters have grown and changed over this time.
0: As people involved in the creation of anime, I think that they have grown demonstrably and significantly. They've gone from stumbling in the dark to having uh, a pipeline, an established procedure to how these things are created, and the ways and efficient ways to uh, operate with not just within themselves but with others, um, and to build something uh, to delegate to to express the The proper ways to express themselves, to get their ideas not only understood but uh, executed at the highest level um in in all those ways they've grown, but have they grown as characters and people personality wise? Um, maybe a little bit of a soxa, like we've like here's an interesting place to bring up um, episode 11's big flashback which shows the initial meeting between asakusa and kanamori Mm. and i didn't want to short shrift this it comes at a key moment when she's sort of contemplating this idea of coexistence and she looks back on when she first met kanamori and it was in a gym class and asakusa was not nearly as developed as a person um she was much more um insular in all of her idiosyncrasies. You know, she saw herself as someone who wanted a friend, but was unable to make that step forward towards getting one. And yet she was also sort of like withdrawing constantly. She was afraid of big crowds. That's something we saw at the beginning of the series. So if you say that she's grown, she's definitely grown in that way too, because we've seen her now with big crowds. And although she's still not fully embracing it i mean she's operating within those within that realm and it's not uh she's not a detriment to it she's not stalling anything like she's she's functioning she's fully functioning although within that
1: i would say when they were selling the dvds she did have a moment where she sat there and said i wasn't ready for this Uh, She
0: is super, super tired, too. Yeah, I mean... And she ends up sleeping, basically withdrawing under the table. What's the longest
1: you have ever been awake?
0: Oh, my God. Maybe. I would say with a 15-minute power nap in between, 31 hours. And that's it. I crashed...
1: And I think I made around 36 or so and it it sucked.
0: It does suck. Um your body's not built
1: to do that. <laughs> I did it in college and I don't yeah, I don't rec- and for anyone listening, if if this is your it's unlikely that you um are so young to have never done your own, your own all nighter, but don't don't do that. That's not good for you.
0: It's really not and I don't think I don't know if the work I did was great at that point. <laughs> Uh, but the flashback is interesting too because it also, um, Kanamori. Is immediately she immediately pegs who Asaka is. She's like, Hey, that girl over there who wants a friend. Yeah. <laughs> That's one of my favorite Kanamori moments, really. It's So I I gotten so bogged down in talking about the finale as a like an end point that I'm missing a lot of the things that make Azoken special, which is a lot of the character stuff. And kan- we get a
1: lot of that in these flashbacks. Kanamori is one of the most um interesting characters to me in in how like she doesn't seem emotional at all, and she's very focused on, in her mind, making money. I presume that she she has an emotional component to her character, but I don't think we've seen it uh, in any context. The closest I can remember is when she took the other girls out for dinner, um, and she got really tired of that dinner and kind of took a nap. Um,
0: and then That's and- a weird thing to say, though, like... I I really understood that she was like she really had an emotional moment when she took a nap during Well, but dinner. It, the, I that's it was, it was vulnerable.
1: vulnerable. Yes, that's right. That's exactly right. I was not implying that it was an emotional moment but that it was as close as we see her get to having a a vulnerable moment, a moment where she is not um her same ruthless self. And to just build on that, she is the character that I do not think changes from uh, it or grows and changes across this. She deals with problems of greater complexity, but she also always seems to be. She do, she rarely runs into a challenge where she doesn't seem ready and able to face it. Um, and in fact, that becomes more so the case as time wears on. As we just talked about, when when she was able to roll with the punch of this um, DVD issue, she seemed to have a backup plan, as if she anticipated it would happen almost. Um, and it's I find that uh, and. A quirk of the Isoken. Um, and we've talked before about well, how much does she actually care about um, Asakusa? I think she does care. I, I agree, but uh, we don't we don't see that expressed in a traditional f- emotional format.
0: It's it's interesting because I use the word nakamodomo almost interchangeably with friend when we talk about it on this show, but here they make a pretty large distinction, especially in the localization in the translation of Nakama as comrade versus friend because friend in this context seems to be being perceived as frivolous as more uh, people who hang out with each other because they're just watching the clock, spending time, you know doing fun things whereas the can, they're more than friends uh, they're they're comrades in this in this thing they're building together, um, but I also think they're friends. I think it's just a, sort of a distinction that not that uh, Saksem likes to make because I think Nakama reads deeper, and Nakama is a word that comes up in One Piece all the time, or just Shonen manga in general. Um, and I, I think that's an interesting distinction in that it, it's people who are working together towards the same goal or dream, right? That's how I see you guys. <laughs> well, but I,
1: I have always we struggled with this earlier, and I reiterated here that the way that Kanamori expresses herself is is less less connected to the way that it appears um, Asakusa and Mizuzaki connect and communicate, right? You don't, you get the sense that. Kanamori is extremely pleased when all the CDs or DVDs are sold out but It's it's not a It's not a celebration. It seems like with everybody else It's like she flipped the lever internally like this was this was what needed to happen um, And so I I find her so that's that's where I I, I the reason I asked the question is I do feel exactly the way as you articulated it that both Mizuzaki and Asakusa grew and changed over the course of Eizoken. Um, they they gained a greater understanding and of what comes down the pipeline. They gained greater capabilities of being able to deal with those issues. They have more confident about what their roles are. I mean, you look at Mizusaki. She was, you know, she was forced not forced, but she was an actress slash model um, or model yeah. slash actress. And now she's not. She's making. Movies. She's in. She's an animator. Um, you know. Definitely, she's changed. But
0: Kanamori has not. Uh, she it's is. It's interesting. I, I don't know if you're right because um, we don't know what she was capable of before this. We know that she always had that keen sense, and she was bold. We know that from the flashbacks. But we don't know if maybe working with the azoken and having such a such a concrete goal that is constantly being set for herself was able to push her to become more assertive and more and think further and further outside of um outside of conventional wisdom so like she The the adults are constantly trying to put their morals on her or the student council is constantly trying to get her to follow these rules. Yeah, those
1: pesky rules and morals. We'll have none of those.
0: And she and she finds creative ways constantly to subvert or twist those 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 same rules and morals against the people using them on her. And that's not something we saw in the flashback exactly. What we saw in the flashback was just an opportunist. What we see in her time at the Azoken is someone who's... I don't know, like a maestro. <laughs> like, it certainly made her much more cunning, or it allowed her to, like, plumb those depths, so to speak. <laughs> So, I don't know. And I also think her heart grew a little bit as well, because being part of it seems to have at least ingratiated herself. I mean, when we see her in the flashback with Asakusa, when they first met, and basically she lays it out that they're not friends, and that they just basically have some kind of copacetic relationship. What is it called when, uh, like, a bird—no, when a bird cleans, like, a a hippo's mouth— uh, They've described their relationship as mutually beneficial, um, even at that early stage where, you know, Asakusa and Kanamori, who make a very fun pair, they're sort of the Laurel and Hardy, <laughs> but not really. <laughs> it's not like not, Asakusa's not like ro- round or anything, but she's shorter and stouter. No, I you. I, I gotcha. And I Kanamori gotcha. I, is towering. And, and, and impressive,
1: somewhat lanky, a bit cadaverous. Yeah, lanky.
0: Cadaverous. <laughs> That's a terrible word. It is, but I it, I actually
1: used it intentionally. I feel like she is a bit um uh, a bit gaunt.
0: Yeah, yeah, she is, and it's intentional. And and we actually see her relative, whether it's her sister or her mother. I'm not entirely certain, but she pops in, and it's a very non-emotional exchange of yeah. of words and actions. Um, other things I liked in the episode. Um, I loved the... I loved how... You know how in the episode... Uh, in the three and four, I think it was, uh, they positioned Asaxa as obsessed with this raccoon dog? <laughs> in this one... As Asakusa is going around playing frivolously, Kanamori comes in with a net and grabs her and is like, I found a delicious looking raccoon dog. (laughs) And she scoops her up. and um, It ties into the flashback because, and this is something you might not have gotten because it's cultural, but Tanuki are known for turning leaves into things. um, And they could have turned leaves into money. And that's what Kanamori sees in Asakusa is a way to turn leaves into money, and it's literal as well as figurative, because leaves of paper become money for Kanamori because of their work. True enough. There's that mutually beneficial relationship again. So I just, I think that that kind of sums up the series, is that this is the the process of turning leaves into money. Not necessarily for the purpose of putting grilled fish on, (laughs) but yeah.
1: So we come to the end here. Am I sad that Isokin is over? A little bit. I thought it was a very clever um, animation and it had a lot of really nice moments that I liked a lot. Um, What it did not it was not particularly poignant it didn't it didn't yank the heartstrings it didn't have a you know a big emotional down it had some it had some waivers and there was some tension but i actually like the fact that it was not something that um it, it, like i didn't need a particularly emotional story here i thought that the gimmick of an animation about animators was was enough to to rank it quite highly as and as I you know I said before I thought it was a very compelling animation. Um, it didn't have an emotional hook uh, to me. Uh, I don't know if that's. Or I, I'm trying to decide if that's even a fair thing to say. I don't think you're say. wrong.
0: I don't think you're wrong in that. I don't think the emotional hook is between the characters. It's sort of. I was. I can't say that I wasn't like very very emotionally connected to their success though um that they worked so hard my girls my girls worked so hard and the outcome of their of their blood sweat and tears not so many tears but their 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 blood and sweat was was well worth it and uh, I definitely got a little teary eyed at the end when they sort of were Wrapping selling up. out their DVDs yeah. and watching their finished product and everybody's Blu-ray players exploded or DVD players exploded and the the greatest world or whatever they call it the ultimate world started like rising out of the city it's like it, it kind of spoke to the transformative nature of anime itself of, of just creative um, creative artistic or creative arts Like, creative arts just sort of, like, expand our world, involve us, um, tantalize us, you know? Like, I just found, like, that this series was very good at making me feel connected to the art that I put in my life. Yeah. And it also connected me to the creatives behind it in a way that a lot of... Um, like just a documentary or a, a behind the scenes or a director's commentary might come up short with. I
1: feel more engaged in the process of watching animation after having seen a
0: Yeah. And I like to pay a little bit more attention to what I'm watching now than I did before. So in my own growth, um I don't I wouldn't say I'm a totally different person than when I started watching Azoken. Uh, but I I have started to look at things a little bit differently and I hope that that's reflected in our shows going forward as well. Oh,
1: I um, I have nothing more to, to add. I I'm I'm excited to move on to the next the next adventure.
0: So, next week we will be covering Yuasa's film, The Night is Short, Walk On Girl. And the next week after that, we'll be doing Belladonna of Sadness, which is this really trippy and strange movie uh, from, I believe it's from the 70s, which is going to be something completely different for us. And then we'll see what happens next. But I can I can tell you that the that series four is Paranoia Agent, the series by... Um, legendary Japanese director Satoshi Kon. Uh, and if you have you ever watched a Satoshi Kon movie, Don? No. You are going to be in for a ride cuz we are definitely doing uh, <laughs> we're definitely doing something with his movies if you haven't seen any of them. Anyway, thank you all for listening and we will be back next week. So join us please and go out there to your podcast Uh, the place where you get your podcast, probably Apple Music or Apple Podcasts. Leave us a beautiful review telling us how much you love us and how much you love the show and all those, like, loving, gushing praises because we need to get our show more and more out there. Tell a friend. Go to our Twitter. It's Okashina Podcast. That's O-K-A-S-H-I-N-A Podcast. And just follow us there. We are constantly coming up with goofy and clever ways to promote the show. And that's the best place to get news about what we're doing next and to share with us what you thought of us or what you want to see on the show. I mean, not see, but listen here on the show. (laughs) I always say that, you know, because Don and I are always doing this over Zoom. So I'm seeing him at the time. So I'm thinking other people are looking at me. I'm also constantly just looking at myself, like, hey, how kind of fabulous looking. Zoom
1: does that to you, yes.
0: I'm flipping my hair right now. Oh, I flipped my <laughs> headphones out. <laughs> oh, I wish you
1: could all be here to see that.
0: Yeah, it's uh, very, very cool. So, anyway.
1: Okashku <laughs> Ikoyo! I was gonna say Okashku Ikoyo, but. You, know, you beat me to it.
0: Oh. Do you want to say it again? Okashkoi oh, There it is. <laughs> you guys came for it, and that was it.